When the metaphorical jail door closes, it slams, and we are confined to our homes, where do we turn to stay sane during this time of crisis? Well, one way is to look for our comfort food, our media comfort food, in the form of podcasts, movies, albums, novels, poems, songs, and TV shows. This is a podcast where we ask artists and celebrities what their choices are as they try to stay sane during this global pandemic. Well, it's a great pleasure to introduce you to Joan Wickersham. Her most recent book of fiction is The News from Spain. Her memoir, The Suicide Index, was a National Book Award finalist. She's also the author of the novel, The Paper Anniversary. Her fiction has appeared in many magazines, including One Story, Glimmer Train, The Hudson Review. Uh, she writes regularly for the Boston Globe. She's published essays and reviews in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, she's won many awards, including uh, one grants by the National Endowment for the Arts. And she's taught at Harvard, Bennington, and many other places. She lives in Cambridge, and it's a great pleasure to introduce you to her. Uh, I had a great conversation with her about her reading, her music, and I think you'll find it a very absorbing conversation. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Joan. I first asked her what she thought about the pandemic. What words came to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the the, the sensation has been of, of having no horizon. You know, just feeling like I'm looking out in front and I can't tell where the land is, where the water is, how far away I am, and what it is I'm trying to get to. And, and I, I think it's not just... I mean, that's my personal experience, but I think that's the whole feeling that people are having now is just this absolute inability to look forward. Yeah. Now, that's my feeling, too, uh, that uh, we just don't know when this thing's going to end. And, and so uh, people are kind of going about things, trying to stay positive, but there's this nagging feeling like we are shipwrecked or something that there's something yeah. that's not quite uh, stable about the situation. And, I, I, you know, and you're kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop. And, that, and I'm feeling like that must be like it was back in the prelude to wars. That's the only co- kind of connection I can make, is that you never knew when the, when the battle was actually going to start. And there was this thing called the phony war in London, where I'm from. Uh, people talked about the phony war. And this, this feeling like something impending, some doom, because it just things can't kind of exist like this in this kind of uh, limbo land. I guess would be yeah. one way to describe it. But it's also I, I agree with you. It's like a perpetual feeling of vigilance, um, yeah. but not not really you know being vigilant and being helpless and being you know no matter how much information we get, we're still completely. Uh, clueless about what's what what this is. Nobody really understands yet what this is. Um, it's just a heartbreaking type of virus. It seems to be designed by central casting to cause much as much disruption and agony and misery as possible. Um, hard to, yeah, and um, and I, I think it kind of reminds us that you know as human beings, it's it's not an ordinary state that we're. We are social beings more than anything, and feeling. Uh, I'm also feeling this empathy with prisoners now, uh, people who've been confined and have never taken that really that seriously. That that loss of freedom is 
is now here. I mean, and uh, it's, a, it's a very relative loss of freedom in the sense I can go out and, and walk the dog and do things. But uh, it is, um, it must be horrific to, to have, uh, be confined uh, in prison. And now prisoners are under enormous, uh, you know, stress. And I guess the few white-collar people who have access to good lawyers and money uh, can, can get themselves out, uh, given yeah. the emergency. But so many more people, without having committed huge crimes, uh, that their the white-collar crimes are uh, forced to, you know, kind of, and, and the people around them, their relatives are forced to go through the agony with them. Um, anyway. Uh, are there any some bright sides to this? Any anything positive to say? Well, I mean, I I think your your set of questions about you know what are the kinds of, what are the what are the what are the things in each genre of art yeah. that are somehow consoling and getting us through? I do think these things have become deeply important, you know, to to me and to other people during this time. I think there is a way that. You know, things that I love, I now love. Oh, you know, okay. I feel like I need I need these things, and I feel like I'm 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 very aware of the deep consolation that I'm getting from books and from music, particularly from music right now. I think, but um, but from books and from films and just from feeling like these things were here before this happened, and they're going to be here after this happened, and there's just a sort of um, I think you know when when you started this this conversation by asking you know what are the words for this I don't really have words for this and so I think there's a way that art reaches people on a level where there it's beyond words and so there's a way that there's just something comforting about particular works that I can't really define what it is but it's really really helping and I think that you know that's that's one of the, the, the good things in this is is really deeply appreciating the things that I appreciate. Mm. And so let's begin with that. Which uh, you want to talk about your music choices um, first? Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking again. I think this is a very interesting project that you're doing. I, I, I would like to ask you at the end how you how you came up with the idea. But I just I just think the whole idea of what are because the choices are so personal you know i think we all have our 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 things and it's going to be different for everybody and that's why i love the idea that you're talking to not only you know different people but different kinds of people in different disciplines and everyone is going to you, by the end you're going to have the the best list anybody ever compiled of anything but um for me you know i, I was thinking about in general what what how would i characterize the the stuff that i'm drawn to right now and i was thinking what I've learned is that I think in a pandemic, you can either go away from it, you know, try to escape and have things that completely distract you and are completely other, or you can have things that take you toward it in some way that is consoling. Um, and I'm finding that um, for me right now, the music that's really helping me the most is is listening to Bach. And I've I've listened to him for years. He's always been my favorite composer but i just think there's a way that right now the the fact that his music is there's a sort of uh 
profound structure to it that I don't understand. I'm not a musicologist and I'm not a mathematician. And so I don't understand it intellectually the way I think some people do. But I think the people who do understand it understand that there is something inherently correct about the structure that I think I understand intuitively when I listen. So it's music of great beauty, but it's also music that feels um, ordered. In a, it, it, it feels like anti-chaos music. And that is really, I think that's really, really speaking to me right now. And particular things that I would, that, that I'm drawn to, I, I, I love both his vocal and instrumental music. I love the fact that there, that he was so prolific. So you never, you never run out of things to listen to and you can listen to the same thing 500 times and still want to hear it again the next day. I never get tired of his music. So I'm listening to, um, one of the, one of the joys I, I've always thought with these desert Island questions, if you could cheat, you know, like if someone says you can bring one book, are you allowed to bring Shakespeare? <laughs> You're allowed to bring a lot of things to this. Day. Yeah. So I feel like one of, if, if someone only let me bring one thing of Bach, I would bring, I have the complete cantatas, uh, and, and the, I've listened to many versions of them, but the versions I really love, I have a complete set by the um, conductor Masaki Suzuki, okay. and it's it's just five big fat boxes of all the cantatas, and I just play, I just put, put one of the discs on in the morning, and I just play, and sometimes I sit and I listen to it very deliberately, but a lot of times I just have it on, which I, again, I'm sure would horrify certain serious music people, but I just I just like to have it on, and I drift in and out of listening, suddenly something will catch me and, I, and I'm astounded. The other day I was listening to uh, cantata number uh, 42 and I just suddenly heard this thing in the middle of it that sounded like dance, dance music, which Bach can do. You know, he can have this very solemn liturgical music and then suddenly, suddenly something makes you want to get up and, and dance. And I listened to it and so then I looked up the text of what I was listening to and the, the text was something like... Um, don't worry, dear little flock, your enemy may be uh, hunting you down, but um, this will not go on for long. And I just thought that is so, that's such consolation, you know, to get that unexpected dance music and then to find that the dance is, is that the happiness in the music is basically saying, just be brave and endure and this will pass. You know, that was just like this unexpected, wonderful piece of consolation so those are those are inexhaustible for me I also love um, the Saint Matthew Passion I listen to over and over and over I listen to the B minor mass over and over and over and I also um, the other specific thing I wanted to say for your list is um, the mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt Lieberson who died um, in the early 2000s very young died in her early 50s um, I think of of cancer. She recorded two uh, two Bach cantatas. Um, I'm just going to look up what what numbers they are. Number 82 and number 199. And um, they're just th- those performances with it's it's with Craig Smith, I think, conducting. And they're absolutely beautiful. They're cantatas about endurance and suffering. And she just recorded them with so much. Um, just such a beautiful voice and so much feeling. So I think it's interesting. I just I just feel that Bach he's never sentimental, um, but it just just in terms of the humanity and the feeling and the beauty, 
um, and the sort of the sense of transcending whatever's going on in the world that that uh, is very very comforting right now. So that's my that's my sublime music to kind of go toward the pandemic, but not in a not in a pessimistic way, but to to go toward it in the sense of recognizing that something's going on that is terrible and I need consolation. Um, Bach is my my answer for that. The other music that I realized is really helping me is the other kind of music where you just go away from it and you just say the hell with it. I don't want anything to do with this. I just want something really loud and really different. And for me right now, there's a um, an English band called Elbow. And um, I don't know if you know no, them, I but... Their music is just, it's just wonderful. It's kind of inventive and it's, it's, um, it's, it's uh, subversive, you know, subversive, but in a kind of uh, humorous, humorous way and very funny and not always very funny, but sometimes very funny, kind of dark. Um, and it's just, it's the kind of music that when I'm washing the dishes, I put it on really loud and I just feel better. It's, okay. it's, it's cathartic music. Are you listening to it uh, through um, what is it? Streaming services? Are you just? Do you have a record? It sounded with the Brock that you, you you've got a record player. With good yeah, I, I I still have CDs. I, CDs. I, we kind of stopped halfway. You know, we got rid of all of our records, but we never went all the way to streaming. So I, I still am a CD person. Oh, but um, yeah. Okay. So I just because a lot of people yeah I've switched over to streaming, but I I, I miss just putting a CD on occasionally. Uh, still kept it. So this is fascinating. I like the the Brahms cello, not the Brahms, the Bach last cello concertos. I, I just yeah. don't know about the cantatas. That's a really good find. Yeah. Something. Yeah, and if you if you want to start with the cantatas, uh, the the ones I would start with would be number four and number one forty. Okay. Um, those are just those are those are sort of I think the best ways. And the the four is a is a a kind of a, a quiet contemplative one, and the 140 is a loud rejoicing one. But they both have beautiful. You know, they always have uh, some instrumental things, and then some choral things, and then some solo arias and duets. And the duets are, you know, the duets are just sublime. Um, and and I just I just think those two would be the best ones to start with. Yeah, that sounds great. Good recommendations. Okay, so we move from music to novels. That's where you have staked your claim. Uh, your artistic uh, strength is in there uh, and memoir. Do you go to novels now or, or nonfiction or are you, where are you with that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Those I, I've been sort of having trouble concentrating on reading. I, I, I've been sort of flitting around from thing to thing, and nothing's quite right. And again, when I think about this idea of either going towards something or going away from something, I, with reading, I'm, I don't want to go away from this. I, I feel very annoyed right now with any writer who didn't see this coming. And of course, nobody saw this coming. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of narrowed the field. But what, what's been helping me in the last few weeks is um, I read two very different books that both in their way were about pandemic. And that that was surprisingly uh, consoling for me because I just I just wanted some context for this and some perspective. So I started with this uh History. It's a it's a book that came out in 1976 by uh, William H McNeil, and it's called Plagues and Peoples, and it's it's a history of the world through the lens of disease, mm. 
and particularly through through the idea that um, as th that there was a kind of a natural balance between people and organisms when populations were small and stable in terms of their uh, habitats and their practices. And that what happened was when populations started to become more unstable and started to move around and there started to be invasions, that populations that never should have been exposed to certain things got exposed to them. And that's what really triggered these pandemics throughout history. And it's a really, I, I found it just really interesting because I don't have, you know, I, I don't have a scientific background. And so part of what I was trying to figure out was the context for what what we're going through. Why is it so bad? Like, why are we so helpless when there are so many other medical things that we can deal with? And there was just a way that reading that book, it made me understand more of the biology and also kind of just made me feel like, yeah, you know, we're, we're animals. I forgot that. Yeah, um, but we, we can forget we, that. And, and yeah, why, we can forget that. And, and it's also the other thing that occurred to me is, you know, a lot of people said this, but it sort of seems, it seems like nature is taking uh, a little revenge on us. Uh, yeah. Taking yeah. it out on us. That we, yeah. we, we stray, we, we've gone, you know, it's sort of Adam and Eve-ish. We've eaten the tree of knowledge. We shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Yeah. We should stay in the garden. And yeah, we meddle. We meddle. We meddle too much. It seems to be a warning. Mother Nature is saying, watch out now. Yeah, absolutely. So so this book was good for that, you know, just for some 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 panoramic understanding. And then then the other book that I read that was about a pandemic that I, I reread, which is a book I love, is Catherine Ann Porter's uh, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, which um it's a it's a book, it's a collection of three uh, long stories. They're really novellas, but she apparently hated that word, so we can't use it. But um, but the last one, which is the title story, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, it's about a young woman in 1919 um, in an unnamed American city who is going around the city with her lover who's about to be shipped off to fight in the war. Um, I'm sorry, it's 1918. Um, 1918. Um, he's about to be shipped off. And she is so concentrating on that he is about to go off to die that she doesn't even notice the they keep running into these funerals in the street of the city. She's not feeling well, but she keeps brushing it off. And then, of course, the disaster, she's looking over to the left and the disaster comes from the right and she ends up going down with the, the flu. And um, the description of the the feeling in the city, the panic in the city, the bed shortage in the hospital, the hallucinatory experience that she has with the flu. It's just, it's amazing. And so it, it, it satisfied my feeling for what does this do to people's souls? You know, what is this, what is this experience? What are we living through? Because one of the things that drives me crazy, frankly, in the middle of all of this is this feeling of instant, that there's, there's this feeling that people have to instantly figure out what this is and how to respond to it. And my feeling is we don't know what this is and we will not really even know our own responses to it for years and years. You know, I think literature, one thing I like about fiction, you know, something like Catherine Ann Porter, she had the flu in 1918 and she published this story in 1939. Mm. And I think there's a way, I mean, it doesn't necessarily take 20 years to digest something, but I think it takes a while. And so I think there's a kind of profound there's a profound understanding of 
not only what this experience did to her, but what this experience of a pandemic does to a society. And I think that's kind of woven into the book in a way that it just seems very smart and, and again, consoling to me. Does your, uh, the earlier book you mentioned, the one that was uh, published in 1976, is that right? Um, did that go into the origins of the Spanish flu? Because one thing I've learned, yeah, not really. He he really just talk. He just touches on that very briefly at the end. I was disappointed. So, so go on. So one thing I heard, and this is what I got to get check out, is that uh, Woodrow Wilson had no real empathy or understanding about the flu, uh, Spanish flu. He was told that they send people over in the first world war into Europe in tight quarters with these ships that there would be uh, an outbreak of flu that there already had been flu in that, in that area. And what he did by his actions uh, was to actually uh, make it a whole lot worse and had no conscience about it. Uh, now, I need to, I need to research, because Woodrow Wilson's one of my heroes in the sense that he came up with the best plan for world peace in 1918, but he's also uh, terribly... Uh, different to uh, all kinds of advice and suffering that he might have avoided. I don't know quite how, but I guess that kind of talks to the fact that people have very limited imaginations when it comes to sickness and disease, and certainly on a mass scale. They can't quite get their heads into it and understand it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and they don't, they believe, it. you know, it's like an act of nature. And, and therefore, you do, the human part of it uh, doesn't seem to account for much, or you know. But it's 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 as you're you're right. It's suggested. It's it's it is a uh, we engineer these things as much as anything. We're not totally passive in this relationship between ourselves and disease. Yeah, one of the things that fascinated me was reading the 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 more scholarly plagues and peoples, and then reading the Catherine Ann Porter, both of them in a way, they didn't say this explicitly, but what I kind of got reading them was the idea that biologically and psychologically, a pandemic is an assault on innocence in some way. And it doesn't mean that we're innocent. I think, I think in the way, I think I would agree with you that we're culpable in certain ways, you know, the, the sort of the meddling and, and also what we're seeing now, the mishandling of, of stuff. But, but I think there's a way that only a biologically innocent population, by definition, is vulnerable to a pandemic because that's why the, the organism can just go to town because there's no defense, there's no built up immunity. And then there's a psychological immunity that people didn't think this could happen to them. And, and yet, you know, and so I think both of these pieces in different ways do that. The other book I wanted to mention quickly, because you started off the conversation talking about wartime, the other book that I have found really wonderful to go back to is the uh, British novelist Elizabeth Bowen, whose work I love, uh, wrote almost better than anyone else about wartime London. Mm. And I'm finding those stories that she wrote about wartime London are really, really great. And and I just finished rereading a novel of hers that I love called The Heat of the Day, which is set during the war in London. And what I love about it is it's she really understands better than anyone else I know what it's like when all the old rules of how to be are out the window and nobody really knows what the new rules are. Wow. 
um, you know, that that that's a particular kind of stress on people. And I think that's, again, I feel like it's not directly related to this, but I love it because it doesn't, it doesn't, it feels apropos in some way that yeah. is complex. And I think people are thinking about, well, it's similar to the way people returned from the war, both in 1918 and 1945, uh, that things have to be different now. Uh, we can't go on yes. the same way. Things have changed. Um, so that's the, so good, those recommendations. So uh, poetry. Poetry, you know, I, I found um, one poem that uh, by accident, I was reading reading Kavafi the other day, and I found a poem of his that I love and it's very short and I, I just thought I would read it if that's okay. Um, it's it's in it's I read several different translations and this is the one I liked. It's it's called Things Fulfilled. Tortured by fear and suspicion, mind agitated, eyes alarmed, we invent ways out, plan how to avoid the inevitable danger that threatens us so terribly. And yet we're mistaken. There's a different danger ahead. The news was wrong, or we didn't hear it, or didn't get it right. Another disaster, one we never imagined, suddenly, violently overwhelms us. And finding us unprepared, there's no time now, sweeps us away. Yeah, that's definitely something. We, we've been focused on the wrong thing. When I think yes. of that, um, I, I, it doesn't seem to have occurred to lots of people. We have stockpiled weapons upon weapons for a war that is not going to occur because any one of those weapons would wipe us all out several different ways and times. But we have continued to spend, I would say, billions if not trillions of dollars on this absurd uh, structure of, of uh, weaponry. So that's the... We, We've never, and the UK, I was just reading a headline there, the UK, and I guess us too, we've never stockpiled the things that, for, for an emergency, for a pandemic. We yeah. stockpiled missiles. We, yeah. stock, we don't stockpile, you know, ventilators or uh, even basic things like masks. We haven't stockpiled them. We had to import yes. from Turkey, from everywhere. <laughs> Stop my breath. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> don't stop on my account. So it's, uh, it's not my show, but I uh, that's a good poem. We have, and it's sort of, and it, it, it's like, yeah. So let's go to uh, movies. Well, movies, I have one strong recommendation, which okay. probably everyone's familiar with, but it's really interesting to watch it again now, which is um, Hitchcock's Rear Window. Um, and I, I think that movie, it, there's not a better movie about being stuck inside and what kind of distortions that creates in a person. And uh, I, I just think, you know, the idea of this man who's sitting there helpless in a wheelchair with his leg in a cast and he's staring out the window and trying to figure out what the hell's going on out there based on completely partial information of what he sees in his neighbor's windows. I just think that there couldn't be a better, I mean, it's a really wonderful movie in any case. It's, you know, it's brilliantly written. It's stylish. It's gorgeous. It's 
perfect, I think. But I just, I, it, it's so much the right movie for right now, I think. And I, 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 I was struck, I watched it again over the weekend because it just, it, it just, I wanted to see it. And I was struck by how this is a man, it's such a brilliant piece of storytelling because this is a guy who is immobilized and on the verge of having to make a big decision whether or not to get married. And everything he sees in his neighbor's window ranging from some trivial little thing of a man putting a shirt on a child all the way up to a murder in a different apartment. Every single thing he sees is a variation on the theme of being single versus being married. And it's just amazing to just watch all these little stories play out. Um, so I think for me, that that's one that's going away from it in, it's in the sense that it's as beautiful escapism. It's so, it's so perfect for what it is, but it's also going toward it because it, it's, somebody who's locked in and um, coming up with ideas that are kind of crazy, except that they happen to be true. So that's, that's my recommendation for a that's movie. That's a great recommendation. Oh, boy. Um, wonderful. I'm going to have to watch it again now. Because uh, I didn't notice all that at all. I, I don't, all I, I remember from it is these silhouettes in the, in the window, but it's probably uh, there's a lot more to it. Um, Okay, so we've got, how about TV shows? Are those binging on? Yep, okay. yep, absolutely. And for those two, I have one that's going sort of toward it, but in the way that Bob goes toward it, um, and one that's going away from it. So I'm going to start with the going away from it. Um, we just accidentally stumbled on a, a series on Netflix called um, Stiesel. Oh, yeah. Um, which is... Yes, it's and it's an Israeli television show about um, a Hasidic family in Jerusalem, and it's just I just thought it was wonderful. It's just really well written, really well acted, and very much about the unintended. Um, the father of the patriarch of the family is a, you know, so-called good man, and he's he thinks of himself as a good man, but his actions are have you know, unintended consequences for his grown children. And I just thought it was a brilliant family drama and just really, really engrossing and well done enough to the point where um, I really looked forward to watching it after dinner. I think that in this in this time we're in, to have a sort of dessert at the end of the day of a wonderful TV a reward. thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah, and that just felt, I looked forward to it all day, and I thought about that family all day. You know, I thought, well, why did, how come he did that, and why didn't she just say that? And I got very, very involved. And so I, I just think just for a pure, delicious, smart thing, that, that that's that's my escape thing. Um, I, I just loved it. For my, for my sort of more going toward it in the way of going toward it with Bach, just in the sense of a transcendent, you know, just transcending it and realizing we were here before this, uh, hopefully we'll be here after this. Um, I've gone back to Kenneth Clark's Civilization series from the late 60s. And, um, you know, I know people have criticized, this is, it's, it's really his, his view of what makes civilization, starting with the Dark Ages and going all the way up through the middle of the 20th century. And really, it's really about art. It's about architecture. It's about music. It's about art, um, uh, a little bit about writing, but mostly about the visual arts. But um, but I know that that's it's been criticized that series because it is, and it and justifiably so. It's it's very Western. It's very um, it's Western. It's Northern. It's white. It's male. You know, but. I feel like it's, I think in a way, if you look at it as a, 
history of civilization is lacking. But I don't think he meant it that way. I think for him, it was a very personal project, Kenneth Clark. I think he was really putting together his own quarantine island disc in a way of here are the paintings that that really here are the great paintings here are the great buildings here are the great here's the great music that i love you know he's he's saying this, this is what i love and he's because he loves this stuff that he's presenting he presents it with enormous um passion and erudition and i don't always agree with what he loves i don't always love what he loves but i understand why he loves it and he kind of is giving me permission to love whatever i love and so i just think there's a way that you know, not just the the pandemic, which is bad enough, but the time we're living in now is so uncivilized in certain ways and so barbarous in its in its you know ignorance and its passionate passionate defense of stupid stuff and and just I mean it's it's infuriating. I worry, you know, and I and, and I think there's a way that this is this is you know Kenneth Clark was the was appointed the head of the National Gallery in, in, in London, I think, right before the war. And I, you know, he thought he was going to be curating all these wonderful paintings, and he ended up being really in charge of getting those paintings out of London so that they would be safe. So, I mean, I, mean, I think he's somebody who came through yeah. bad times, um, scary times. And he, you know, here he is in 1969, just walking on these peaceful places in Europe, you know, talking about the art that he loves and talking about, you know, these... Uh, medieval abbeys and, you know, Italian frescoes and Baroque churches and, you know, and it's just, there's just something very calming about the idea of civilization in a time when there is no civilization. And there, I wouldn't say there's no civilization now, but I think civilization feels shaky. There are certain times in history where civilization feels shaky. And I think right. we're living one of those times right now. So it's, that, that idea is very comforting to me. And, and they were producing great art in the middle of things like plagues and, and yeah. civil wars and brutality beyond belief they were producing. Uh, so it's sort of a strange um, fact that the art will go on and continues despite the inhumanity. Um, so it's kind of a, yeah, you have to be reminded about that, though. And um, any other choices are we forgetting? Oh, podcasts. Do you listen to any of them? I, no. I, I don't. The closest thing I can get to that is I, I'm feeling very um, aware of the small music groups around Boston where I live um, who you know had to cancel all of their concerts. And so a lot of them are doing just email things on a regular basis to people who had bought tickets in the past and they're just sending out music, you know, oh. uh, and I don't know if that's a podcast or not, oh. but, um, we'll, we'll take it as well. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think that's there's something I, I do. I do feel worried oh. about the future yeah. of those groups. Yeah. I mean, of the future theater, the future of any artists right now, uh, there were a few articles in the post about that, um, which, um, things will have to be reinvented around the arts and culture. Um, and I don't quite know how. Maybe uh, we'll have to accept a lot more digital in our lives. Um, but the, something about a live event is something irreplaceable, and you kind of can't put words to it very easily. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Stay in touch. Bye. All right, bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. Well, stay tuned for more episodes of Quarantine on This. Thanks for listening, and uh, please...
please give us uh, some good positive reviews on Apple if you can. And uh, we look forward to the next episode with another interesting author.